Hello, and welcome to the More Than Milk podcast. I believe we are on episode seven right now. I am your host, Heidi Kim, and I skipped the last episode because um, my husband was on fall break. He's a teacher. So we decided to go ahead and focus in on family a little bit and um, enjoy some time together just as a family. But I'm going to jump back into it. And in today's episode, I want to talk about something that is extremely common. Um, So far, I've talked about a lot of very common breastfeeding issues. There are some more uncommon ones, but this is one that I have personal experience with as well. And I've been thinking a lot about in the last week or so. And that is jaundice. Jaundice is such a hot topic, and it is so, so common. Um, And it's a lot of the time reasons why uh, parents end up supplementing straight away. So let's talk about what jaundice is. Um, Jaundice is when the bilirubin levels in your child's liver is so high that... um, it's difficult for them to pass. There's always a little bit, but you don't want those levels to get extremely high because it can cause some toxicity. And so this is my understanding of it from when my daughter had jaundice. It is important to say, I'm not a doctor. This is just my understanding from what my care providers told me when I was dealing with jaundice myself. Um, So a lot of newborns have jaundice. In fact, almost all newborns have jaundice, but some babies are at risk for higher levels of jaundice than other babies. And Roslyn, my older daughter, had quite a few risk factors for jaundice. So um, when your baby has jaundice, the problem is that they need to be stooling. They need to be pooping in order to pass that bilirubin. And um, in order to poop, they need to eat. But the high levels of bilirubin cause them to be very, very sleepy. Newborns in general are particularly sleepy, but jaundiced newborns are very, very sleepy. I was thinking about that because Irene, my younger daughter, is six months old and just woke up six times last night. She is not sleeping well. Whereas Roslyn slept through the night right from birth. I had to wake her up in order to feed her. And that was because she had very bad jaundice. And it's interesting to me that that kind of um, continued. Anyways, that's a little bit of a rant. But normally people tell you never wake a sleeping baby. And typically with breastfeeding, we say to watch your baby, not the clock. Follow your baby's cues. Um... So sometimes you'll hear with newborns, a lot of times in the hospital, they give you like this chart, for example, that's like, how often is baby eating? And you have to fill it out. And they're like, we want to see them eating every X number of hours. Usually it's two hours. Sometimes they'll say three hours, but it's this random number of hours. Um, And for X number of minutes, which I've talked about before, is not necessarily a piece of relevant information. For example, with Roslyn, I thought that she was nursing for a very long time, but she wasn't effectively transferring milk a lot of that time. She was kind of just nibbling at the breast and kind of just there hanging out, but not necessarily transferring milk. So the amount of time a baby spends at the breast and the number of hours in between in and of themselves are not indicative at all of what a baby is getting. 
Um, so that's important to know because it is something that a lot of times parents kind of can get a little paranoid about. I know that I came home with an app to time how often Roslyn was eating, which I probably should have been doing while we were dealing with the jaundice. This is something that you do want to track. Normally you say don't keep a baby on a schedule and follow their hunger cues. But with a jaundiced baby, they won't show you their hunger cues. They'll just sleep and sleep and sleep. And a lot of people with newborns might hear this and think, oh gosh, I would love a baby that sleeps and sleeps and sleeps. But it is a huge problem because if they're sleeping through feedings um, and they're not transferring milk, then they aren't passing the bilirubin. Their jaundice is getting worse and they are getting sleepier and sleepier. So a newborn, you would expect to nurse between 8 and 12 times in a 24-hour time frame, ideally closer to 12. Typically, a newborn will not go longer than four hours without nursing. Sometimes they'll nurse every two hours is like the book, by the book, but no baby is really by the book. It's really common for babies to cluster feed at night, for example, so you might have fed them an hour ago and then they decide that they want to eat again. Um, and that can be very, very normal. So the question is, is baby eating 8 to 12 times in 24 hours? That's a really important thing to note, is that they should be eating at least that often. And so in the case of jaundice, what we had to do with Rosalind is we had to wake her up to feed her very, very frequently in order to help her pass that. Um, another thing that they often end up doing in the hospital is that they have to have uh, billy lights. Sometimes they'll even send you home with something called a billy blanket, which is just this special light that they put on the baby that helps them pass the bilirubin. Um, and we almost had to go back in, into the hospital with Rosalind to do that. But our pediatrician watched it very, very closely because her levels were always kind of borderline and we had to be very careful about making sure that we were coming back for weight checks and about nursing very, very frequently. And he also had us put her in nothing but a diaper in indirect sunlight. Um, So like, don't leave them out in the sun. But we opened a window and we had her kind of set in front of a window whenever she wasn't nursing. And that was kind of how we dealt with it. Um, Rosalind had high risk factors for jaundice. There were a couple of things that put her at a little bit of a higher risk. Uh, the first was that she was 37 weeks, which is considered early term. Preterm babies and early term babies tend to have higher risks for breastfeeding problems in general. It's hard for their little mouths to latch. And even if they're considered term, which 37 weeks are, is they don't necessarily have all the fat in their cheeks that makes it easier for them to maintain suction when they latch. So they're not always the most efficient eaters, and that was certainly the case with Roslyn. I also just found out this week, she's three and a half, and as I said in the tongue tie episode, I think that she had a tongue tie which has been inhibiting her speech. Um, I just found out that she does, in fact, have a tongue tie, which can also contribute to jaundice because if they're tied and they have a difficult time transferring milk, that can lead to um, higher bilirubin levels and also lead to her nursing, sleep nursing, which is what she was doing. Um, other risk factors include something called Coombs positive. So I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here because I don't think that people fully understand Coombs positive um, because it sounds like it's about something that it's not. Coombs positive has to do with your blood type and your baby's blood type. Incompatibility 
um, that people are most familiar with is RH incompatibility. If you have negative blood type, chances are you heard about RH incompatibility from your care providers quite a bit. Um, And that's because if mom has negative blood type, if mom has positive blood type, RH incompatibility is completely irrelevant. Um, But if mom is negative and baby is positive, then what can happen is mom can develop antibodies. They can recognize the RH factor, which is what causes a blood type to be positive, and negative blood types don't have an RH factor. They can recognize the RH factor as... Um, a foreign substance, their body starts to build antibodies. And typically in the first birth, it's not a problem. But then if you have subsequent children that also have positive blood types, your body has spent time building those antibodies and is more likely to attack those babies. Um, I find this really fascinating to think about because there's something that we can do about RH incompatibility. Now there's a shot called Rogam and anyone who has negative blood type likely got a Rogam shot in their third trimester and then shortly after their child was born if baby had positive blood type. Um, so I certainly did. Uh, Rogam helps prevent your body from creating those antibodies. But before Rogam, babies died. And sometimes I wonder, like I think back on Henry VIII. This is such a, a tangent and has nothing to do with breastfeeding, but I'm so interested in it. Um, Henry VIII... Both Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn, I believe their first babies lived and every subsequent baby after that died, which makes me wonder if he had um, positive blood type and if those women had negative blood type, because obviously it's something that they wouldn't have been able to treat back then. In fact, his third child, too, his third heir, um, we don't even know what would have happened with her because um, she died in childbirth. Anyways, I'm sorry, that was a little bit of history, but people do wonder if there was RH incompatibility involved in that situation and other situations as well. Um, but fortunately, RH incompatibility is something that we can treat. A lot of times people hear RH incompatibility and equivalent it with Coombs positive because they realize that Coombs positive is to do with blood type. Coombs positive has to do with not the positive or negative on your blood type, but the letter associated with your blood type. So for example, my blood type is O. Excuse me, sorry. I happen to be O negative, but if you are O positive, this still is relevant to you. Because if baby is not O, meaning baby has A blood type, B blood type, or AB blood type, my understanding is that puts them at higher risk of being Coombs positive. I thought that it that in and of itself made you Coombs positive, but in my last birth, Irene was A positive and I was O negative, and they said she wasn't Coombs positive. So I need to do a little bit more research on that. But Roslyn was A positive, I was O negative, she had Coombs positive, which is a type of incompatibility that does not necessarily put baby at risk the way an RH incompatibility would but it does put them at higher risk for jaundice. And then another factor um, at play with my children is that they are Asian. Asian children tend, well, they're part Asian, but Asian children tend to be diagnosed with jaundice a little bit more frequently. So there were a lot of things that um, made it more likely that Rosalind would have jaundice. So 
what do we do to treat jaundice? Um, there is a lot of misinformation out there with jaundice. And I want to say almost every newborn has some level of jaundice. Breastfed babies in general have um, more jaundice. And jaundice in and of itself is not necessarily bad, provided that they are actually passing the bilirubin. So if your baby is jaundiced and they start talking about supplementing, it is possible that you do need to supplement. Generally, formula is a little bit trickier for babies to digest, which can sometimes actually make jaundice a little bit worse if they are having trouble with pooping. So, um, but if your baby is not getting milk, they need to poop. It's an important part of it. And so in some cases, supplementation is necessary. Now, according to the World Health Organization, supplementation is not necessarily straight to formula. That's typically what people think about when they talk about supplementation. But there's kind of like a, a guide to, um, to supplementation. So ideally, baby nursing at the breast is the most ideal way to feed the child. But in the event that that's not possible, for some reason maybe baby is not transferring well, the next best thing is to supplement with mother's own milk. And so if your pediatrician is talking about supplementing, I would get on board as soon as someone starts talking about supplementing, I would want to talk to an IBCLC immediately to figure out what that's going to look like, how you're going to get off the supplement, how long you're going to be on it, all of those kinds of things, and make sure that you're really having a lot of guidance with that. Um, but the next thing would be for you to be expressing your milk, probably pumping in order to supplement baby. According to the World Health Organization, the next best thing is another mother's milk. And this can be a little bit tricky and controversial. Um, I would love to talk more about that probably in its own episode, maybe two episodes, because there's milk banking and then there's milk sharing. And I have done both um, as a donor, not as a recipient, although I've almost been a recipient a couple of times. And the way that looks is a little bit different depending on it. So um, that is the next preferable thing. And then if that is unavailable, infant formula is the next best thing. And then if infant formula is unavailable, then um, some sort of milk from another animal. And I do want to talk about this just really briefly. There is an uptick, it seems, in a lot of people talking about um, homemade formula. And I just want to say that the World Health Organization does not recommend homemade formula unless there is no access to formula. Formula was invented, and prior to that, a lot of babies were getting these um, homemade formulas made out of, like, goat's milk or cow's milk or whatever it happened to be. And um, while it's true that that's what we used to do, a lot of those babies died uh, because that milk is not designed for a human baby. That milk is designed for a cow baby or a goat baby. So I just wanted to say that briefly on the podcast because um, I notice it's come up a little bit here and there. And I would really encourage people to be looking at the World Health Organization standards on that. And if you don't want to supplement with formula, that's fine. But try to find donor milk then. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm trying not to edit this. So I'm sorry that I have a couple of places where I'm clearing my throat. So there are situations with jaundice where you may need formula. 
Um, ideally, that would not be the first step, though. So if anyone is talking to you about supplementation, the first thing I would do is seek out the help of an IBCLC. And the next thing I would do is also check the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine's website. Um, they have all of their protocols for all kinds of very common issues. And they have a protocol for jaundice. And if you go to the Academy of Breastfeeding website's page, you can see at what point that they determine that supplementation would be necessary. Where's the bilirubin levels that you actually need to consider supplementing? But the first step is to nurse the baby more often. So what does that look like? Because these babies are very, very, very sleepy. It was really hard with Rosalind to get her to nurse, and it involved a lot of stripping her down completely to her diaper, unswaddling her, laying her completely skin to skin, and she'd still be asleep. She would sleep through diaper changes. She was so tired. Um, and so we ended up taking wet washcloths and like tickling her feet and doing whatever we had to do to make sure that one, she didn't go longer than four hours without nursing and two, that she was nursing at least, um, eight, but ideally closer to 12 times a day. And then the rest of her time was spent in indirect sunlight until we did pass the bilirubin test. It just took her a little bit longer. Um, and then also if there's other things going on, that should probably be addressed too. In her case, she had a tongue tie that went undiagnosed the entire time that I breastfed her. I did not know. Um, and now is inhibiting her speech and we're actually going to be getting that corrected on Tuesday. Um, but that was what we had to do, and we had to watch it very, very closely and had to have her bilirubin drawn very, very often because, like I said, jaundice is pretty typical, but if the levels get too high, it can be very dangerous. It can cause brain damage, and it can it can be concerning. And so you do want to make sure that you're being very honest with your pediatrician. And typically I find not every pediatrician is fully educated on breastfeeding. I've said this in other uh, podcasts, but... A lot of what pediatricians get about breastfeeding in school is breastfeeding is important and we should encourage women to breastfeed. Now, here's what you do if women can't breastfeed. And then they talk mostly about formula. And so there's a lot of information that pediatricians have to know. They don't always know everything about breastfeeding. And so if your pediatrician is talking to you about any of these kinds of things, um, one, having the Academy of Pediatrics. I'm sorry, the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine and being able to say, well, this is what the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine says. What do you think about this? I think can be very helpful, but also letting them know that you're working with a lactation consultant, an international board certified lactation consultant, um, will typically allow the doctor to kind of focus in on the bilirubin and the weight gain and be a little bit less concerned with whether or not baby is being fed because an IBCLC's first rule is going to be feed the baby. There might be times that you'll see an IBCLC and they'll say, you need to use formula. And in some cases with jaundice, that is something that you might need to do. In our case, we didn't need to, but um, man, we had to work really, really hard at it. So that is a little bit about jaundice. And I would love to hear more discussion about this. So if you guys are over on the More Than Milk Facebook page, um, you can ask to join the group. I will typically approve you. I do approvals 
usually once a day, and I do try to vet it a little bit just to make sure that you're a real Facebook profile and that you um, exist in real life and that you have a child or that you're at least supportive of breastfeeding. But I would love to hear people's experience with jaundice because um, I know my experience with jaundice was very, very different than my mom's experience with my sister. My sister had jaundice and they told her a lot of misinformation. And maybe someday I'll tell the story of um, myself and my sister when we were breastfed and how we were fed. But um, we've learned a lot since then. And so I'd love to hear from you guys what your care providers did. And I do want to say in the event that you do need to supplement, supplementation in the case of jaundice is typically temporary. Ideally, it's your milk first, and it's usually temporary. It's until you can get babies, Billy Rubin to pass enough that they wake on their own to nurse. So um, you want to be protecting your supply, and you want to make sure that baby is fed. So anyways, I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode about jaundice. Tell me your experience with the- experiences with jaundice over at the more than milk facebook page also quick reminder you can support us over at patreon.com slash more than milk and if you leave a comment there i will try to read it on air and if you want to see more from my family um we also do youtube so you can check out sudden kimpact which is our vlogging channel right now we're doing daily vlogs we've been doing them for a while or you can check us out over at Heidi Kim TV. I just posted a video over there about baby led weaning. Actually, I posted two. So you guys can check that out on YouTube as well. Thanks so much. And I will talk to you all soon. Bye, guys.